instead of having thousands of OKRs, your objectives become even more important than the key results. Because if they really know and feel the objective, that's true alignment. Even if they'll go a little bit like this or like that, they'll still not be off track and the company would move forward. That's true for a company. It's also true for a football or basketball team or for a squad in the army or for any group of people working together. Marketing could add and should add a lot of vision of where the marketing should go. Not only a product, but a whole belief system, a story, a brand. I think most companies are missing out on that. And it's a lot of struggle to convince CEOs about stuff like that. Most of them don't get marketing and worse, they don't like marketing. So it's an uphill battle. Welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast about closing the strategy execution gap and promoting outcome-driven cultures. I'm your host, Jenny Harold, VP of Product Evangelism at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. And inspired by the proven objectives and key results methodology, GTM Hub is the leading platform for strategy execution management for mission-driven organizations. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Gideon Prider, my recent guest on Dreams with Deadlines, understands that story-driven connection is as powerful a marketing and sales tool as any data point or business metric. As CMO and Chief Storyteller at WorkVivo, the communications platform built around employee engagement and community, Giddy, as he is known, and his team harness the power of narrative to drive not just brand profile, but bottom-line sales as well. It was a fascinating, far-reaching chat that left me wondering, why is it that so many executives regard marketing as a necessary evil, when in fact, particularly in this post-pandemic world, it's the connective tissue and heart of an enterprise? A few of the things we talked about. The need for deeper, more authentic connection within distributed workplaces. WorkVivo's highly interactive approach to intranet communications based on collaboration, posting, and sharing not top-down C-suite communiques. The strategy behind story-driven marketing, a transparent, human-centered approach that inspires customer loyalty and engagement. Case studies and some of the specific tools Giddy and his team use to generate compelling content that in turn drives revenue, a correlation too often overlooked by bottom-line-driven leadership teams. The blended approach WorkVivo takes in incorporating OKRs that are both transactional and inspirational, a nimble combo when it comes to maintaining employee commitment and achieving objectives in the midst of rapid growth. And finally, speaking of scaling, Giddy explains how knitting our company cultures together through shared stories not only supports the holy grail of employee retention and motivation, it also sends a resonant message out into the marketplace, one that pays real dividends in sales and brand loyalty. Let's jump in. All right, so super stoked as always. Um, today I get to talk to Giddy Prider, who is uh, hitting up marketing CMO over at WorkVivo, which he's going to talk about in a second. Thanks so much for joining the show, Giddy. Thank you for having me, Jenny. Okay, first question. Let's talk about this great resignation, the great awakening, the great reshuffle, whatever we're talking about. Um, you have this really interesting point of view about people and how much their time is worth 
something I saw, you said, how much would one year of your life be if someone could buy it? Can you kind of talk through what has changed uh, in terms of how people perceive work in their lives today, as opposed to, let's say, two and a half years ago, um, prior to, you know, this massive pandemic? People have options now. How are you thinking about this? Sure thing. So first of all, I'm, I feel flattered that like you use some terms over there that make me uh, make me understand that you saw some of my recent talks. That makes you and my mother, and I feel very flattered. So um, it is something that's very close to my heart. We call it the Great Resignation. I think that that's a binary way to look at like a much bigger problem. People are leaving or not leaving. Now there is a recession coming, so less people are going to maybe leave because they have less options. What does that mean? The problem went away. Not at all. The problem we're talking about mm. is since the pandemic, people staying at home, trying different models, uh, there has been a changing priorities for a lot of people around the world. I'm talking from C-levels and founders to frontline employees working in warehouses or uh, you know, uh, hotel, hotels. Um, people understood, uh, and it sounds a little bit maybe too philosophical, but I think it's very true and we could all relate to it not only on a macro level, but on a micro level, thinking about ourselves, that they're reluctant to continue to be selling their time like they used to. Going to work, spending eight, nine, 10 hours in order to sort of like finance the time that you have left. You go home to your kids, your family gets the leftovers and you don't necessarily like what you do, but you were brought up in a family, in a culture that never let you think about it like too much. And once you tasted that forbidden fruit of seeing your kids a little bit, uh, doing stuff that you like, having more time, maybe even managing like myself in a better way because I'm a very creative guy. In the office, I used to be very intense five days a week. Now I'm a much better manager uh, because of that. Mm. So... All of these nuances, and everybody has their own uh, story, uh, people tasted that forbidden fruit. Going back is very hard. So suddenly they have this taste for, this appetite for finding something better, something that suits their life, something that even if it's not, you know, American dream of like their dream job, it's still a place that they feel, where they feel a part of something. They enjoy with the people that they work with. They feel appreciated. They feel visible and not invisible. They get some recognition. We spend so much time at work, I think that became more important to more people. And I think that's very uh, logical, which is why employee experience suddenly became a big deal. When the great resignation was the big buzzword, then it was like, oh my God, we don't want the people to leave. But the big question is, how do you keep these people emotionally connected, pumped, wanting to be here, doing their job above and beyond, providing a good customer experience, and you having to deal lists with retention, problems of motivation, and giving people instructions. So let's talk about that. How, how do we foster meaningful connections? That's one, I mean, it sounds like a very romantic idea, right? Uh, and I've been reading some books recently about why we gather, because uh, at GTM Hub, we think a lot about our community and how important that is for our, our business. Arguably, an organization now seems like they have to foster kind of in a community internally to give people a reason to gather if they are to draw them back to the office. You can't just be like, work here, right? Um, so how do organizations, how can they foster these 
meaningful connections. You mentioned recognition. How does that happen today in modern a modern work environment where some of us may never meet our colleagues in person ever? The sad answer is that in most companies and most environments, and I'm sure the listeners would agree, it doesn't. It doesn't. And it doesn't happen uh, enough. Some of these things used to exist in an office environment where we didn't have processes for these things, but you know, uh, a lot of uh, things happen sort of naturally, that water cooler discussion, that like, hey, happy birthday, Jenny, or great job with the podcast last week, uh, Jenny. It's something human, and it gives us sort of like the fuel that we need in order to, um, in, in order to be creative, in order to do our job well. Suddenly, when work was reduced to eight hours in front of a Zoom screen, a lot of us forgot to eat lunch. Did that, that, did that ever happen to you? Totally. You discovered like you're sitting in front of the screen, and you're at home, and you're in your pajamas. How fun! But suddenly, you forget to eat lunch. Your your work, your day is distilled, you know, into pure transactional work, you finish more fatigued, tired, and distant than ever before. People join a company, think about younger people with less experience and they haven't met a living soul. What a lonely, sad experience, right? So everybody is figuring out how to solve this because this is not something that they have 10 years to plan for. It's already here mm -hmm. right now. And there is a redistribution of like capital wealth and people know, you know, you read every CEO book in history, you know that the big competitive advantage is usually culture, team, and if you can't maintain that, then what's going to happen? It also presents an amazing opportunity when you think about it because uh, two things. First of all, companies that couldn't compete with uh, Exxon Mobiles of the world before, suddenly maybe they can because they could give stuff that are more on the soft value side that people, especially Gen Z, younger people are looking for that you could provide and they're not getting over there. You give them a sense of belonging, of purpose, of community, and the big company can't. You could compete more, even if you can't pay them as much. Uh, and how do you do it? There's a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, things that comprise our employee experience in general. It's how much we're getting paid. It's our social like uh, terms and stuff. And it's a lot of other things. It's the work itself that we do. It's our calling. But the main thing, the core. And that's very, very hard to argue with is about emotional connection, emotional commitment, meaningful human bonds and a true sense of belonging. And that's, you know, I didn't invent that. That was like, that's in, that's the, the bottom line of every book about happiness in the world, in the history of the world. That's, that's it. And as I started to say, we used to have a lot of that naturally in our office environment, but two things, A, a lot of people don't have an office environment, at least not uh, most of us are going, according to research, are going hybrid. So it's a combination. And that means mm -hmm. this has to happen digitally. This is what we try to tackle at WorkVivo. And I think it's the number one challenge of CEOs today, how to get across that chasm, build that bridge. And two, which is food for thought, 70% of the employees in the world are frontline employees. People, you know, in the hotel or the retail shop or the mine, they never had a computer and they never had an email so they were never connected they always had that problem now that problem became worse but they had that awakening and they want to have that sense of belonging nobody wants to be selling their time anymore so how do you take this problem but treat it as a historic level opportunity 
going digital to digitally find a way to connect people emotionally and make them feel like they belong. So they want to do their job. They want to work for you and not for the next company. And that's everybody's big opportunity and big challenge. And I think that's what's going to separate the men from the children over the course of the next three to four years. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Maybe we start with uh, kind of what we do as businesses. Because I think at one point you had mentioned, Jenny, I think GTM Hub, if it, if you all are like the nervous system, you know, WorkVivo is like the heart and the arteries. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting way to put that. Can you talk a little bit more about, let's dive into WorkVivo and how you are helping with this emotional connection, how you're able to enable the organizations to bring company culture to life now that we're in a hybrid or in some instances, fully remote distributed workforce. Um, it, I can imagine it's very hard. I'm in a weird spot now where I apologize for being one minute late on a Zoom call, which I would never do in real life because you have to go from meeting room to meeting room. And it's super bizarre now because you click a button and you're there, right? How are, how is WorkVivo enabling this? So uh, we like to call ourselves an employee experience platform. The more traditional term would be an employee or internal communication platform. It's a very busy um, space where you have intranets and corporate employee communication you know, platforms where the company sort of broadcast critical communication to people in the field, you know, uh, policies mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, these things uh, have never been really working. Their action rates are traditionally very low. Nobody uses an intranet. I mean, I'm talking numbers that are less than 10%. Companies build intranets for two years and nobody's using them. And as generations get wow. younger, they use it less and less. It's cumbersome, it's ugly, it's clunky. And it doesn't cover the base, the emotional part that I talked about before. So I'll answer two things. What do we do and why are we different in this jungle with like dozens and dozens of companies that claim to be the digital workplace sort of like a center. So mm -hmm. on WorkVivo, it's a community led communication platform where you don't only hear from the company, but you talk back, you're being listened to, you could engage, by liking something just like a social network experience commenting or a, a stuff like that you could post your own content peer-to-peer -peer. you discover your own social carriers inside the organization that have something to say right uh, you get analytics to understand what's going on what's the sentiment better you hear from the ceo you don't wait until you meet her you know you stumble upon her in the parking lot like every once every three years you feel her like on a regular basis you get connected to the company values, goals, not because somebody put this thing on the wall, these are our values, and nobody knows them. You post something, and you click a button, a feature, and you connect it to a company value. We have values, something brilliant. So you did something brilliant, you connected to that. Every person, every intern in WorkVivo knows what our values are, you know, uh, or recognition. So we have a feature for, like, shout-outs, so I could give Jenny a good word. Maybe you haven't met me, but I could say, hey, Jenny, I saw the podcast and the last one. Amazing work. Boom. Kudos. People get alerts. They join me. They clap you. You have this fuzzy feeling that really, really, you know, motivates you. And there are more and more features like that. 
and the traditional stuff, the company could do announcements, you could organize events, you uh, could do a lot of stuff like that. It's not just like writing something like this. You have all the breadth of communication that you have on consumer social media. You have podcasts, they have customers, traditional ones like Talis International, you know, they have a huge podcast every week, thousands of people listening to one of the leaders speak asynchronous. They don't have to like be on Slack and have that FOMO of missing out, less noise. You have live streams, you have uh, articles and you have posts and you have questions and answers and a, a lot of rich media options to actually consume information, share information, engage with information and interact digitally in a way that doesn't replace face-to-face, -face, but it's a hell of a lot better than just joining Zooms and jumping from meeting to meeting uh, all day long. So this is what we do. And the difference is that every platform out there, an intranet, and uh, an employee app for people in the field, uh, communication, all of these tools, they are built top-down. Sometimes, you know, they are built top-down and they add a like button. So they like decorate it with a little bit of like a consumer or social. Usually the UI is not built for users. It's built for admins, not for people. Uh, we flip the pyramid like this. We believe that in the sort of like a pyramid of needs of communication, in the beginning, you have the necessary stuff, critical communications. I tell you to do this and that. On the top of the pyramid, you have inspirational stuff. Like what's the purpose? Why are we doing this? And relational stuff like kudos Jenny, right? We believe that these warm type of communications are the base. You have to build this first. That's culture. Like when people feel it, when they feel apart, a lot of the other stuff would almost solve themselves and you'll have time to add them. So we don't build an internet and then build a like button. We build that community, which is working and is being adopted and generates engagement numbers wise more than any other platform in the market. Why? Because people like using it. And then on top of that, layers of the necessary evils, so to say, documents, file sharing, permissions, policies, integrations to your SharePoint, all of that sort of stuff that we continue to develop and develop to have that robustness. But the core, the moat, is community-led, open communications that democratizes the way we speak to each other and gives a voice to people that never, ever had a voice it also gives their side, the CEO, the leaders in the company, a way like modern age politicians to sort of feel the people in the field in an unpolished but direct and authentic way so they could communicate. And it's been working really, really well, especially since the pandemic. Wow. That's a really big promise. Um, I can see how, uh, yeah, you can definitely, I think, connect I think that's what you're talking about is just building bridges to connect people from various altitudes of the business to talk about things that matter to them in the moments that they matter. I think that's cool. That was a good sentence. I should like look at the recording and use that in our marketing material. I really like that. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a good thing I'm on a marketing team at GTM Hub. <laughs> so then let's talk about Giddy for a while. Like you've been, you've been doing this for a long time. Like, I, I following you back in the Net travel perk, trying to, you know, grow that business to what it is, the global unicorn um, that it is today. Uh, and eventually you reach that unicorn status, intense journey of growth. Uh, and now you're with WorkVivo, um, really trying to do something 
that speaks to today's work and arguably the future of work. How'd you get all into this? What's your story? Well, it's, a good, it's a good question. You know, uh, uh, I like telling stories. Um, uh, since I was a kid, I like listening to stories. I like making up stories. I love being on stage or, or just among the people and telling stories. And if you think about it, telling stories is almost the base of marketing. You know, uh, people always make fun that like uh, marketers lie, make stuff up. And I always tell them that they're so wrong. Only the bad marketers lie. It's very easy to lie. The hard thing is to tell the truth in the most accurate context for the person listening. That's very hard to do. That's madman sort of like marketing, you know? And, and in our day and age, you know, um, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people work in business. So I, I got into business a lot of years ago and marketing was the natural place. It's where I got to tell stories in some companies and some roles. It, it was more about much more about data than about like uh, stories and I could do that but it was less my element and you go from role to role from company to company you grow unicorns you fail with some companies and you get to a place that uh, you know where your own mode is where what's what's your own value proposition and um, I was looking for something that I can really relate to the purpose and feel it's important and that I could connect to it. And by that, that I could tell the story very well. And it was a match made in heaven with uh, WorkVivo because it like takes all these uh, boxes. And I have this talk in SaaS Talk, the uh, European SaaS event in Ireland in, in October. And the title is Story-Led Marketing, uh, which is exactly what we're doing and what I'm leading in, 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 in WorkVivo. So, yeah. So... I'm going to just launch into that because I love, you know, hopefully you're willing to share what are some top line thoughts around story-led marketing ahead of the Saster thing um, that you have in your toolkit that you're willing to share with our audience. Spoiler alert for all those folks out there. You know, uh, uh, I'm, 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 I, love, uh, I love his content and I'm, I'm reading another book of his right now, but uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel, uh, the Nobel Prize winner uh, for uh, he's a psychologist, he won it for uh, I think economics. But he has a famous sentence that says, "Nobody in history has ever bought something because of a number. They they need a story." Uh, and it's true because uh, uh, I think that like as consumers, as people, and as consumers. We feel stuff more more than we think stuff. Different brands make us feel in uh, certain ways. And if you want to take it a level deeper, because when you look at like brands like Coca Cola, then it's pretty shallow. It's just about evoking, you know, this like uh, feeling. It feels fresh. It feels young. When you go especially into B two B, then it might be less about even the brand itself in terms of something that makes me feel a little bit nicer about. A little bit like uh, I don't know nicer, but it's much more about the story uh, itself. Not just what features of the product have, but how would it make my life and my company uh, much better? What is the philosophy driving our roadmap, which makes me confident about where you're taking this product, which makes me more confident that you would be the right partner that I'm looking for two three years from now, and not only now. 
And more, most importantly, going back to the basics of the basics and really investing time in talking and understanding the people that you're selling to. And not only them, but the people that you think you want to sell to going forward, because sometimes just marketing to what your customers are like asking for is like looking for the coin under the flashlight. You want to have the vision of where you want to be in a few years. So where the market should be, where you want to push the market towards. So I think that story-led uh, marketing is a lot about understanding the value proposition of everything from the whole product to a feature for different personas, for different companies, and uh, starting to build a lot of narrative based on that. If you are doing an ad, then it's a more direct narrative that is going to the person that's listening. If you're doing PR, that it's uh, something that would uh, would be a little bit a little bit more provocative, and let the um, encourage the reporter write on it and the people to read about it. Not long ago, uh, Ellen, our, our PR manager, she came up with a concept that we do some research sometimes. That was about not how people are doing since the pandemic, but how are HR people doing? The people mm. on the front line trying to talk to everyone, they became everybody psychologists, you know? So we put money on it, we, we, we led a research. I knew that I couldn't show direct ROI. So when you do story-led marketing, you also have to like, sort of like uh, put money on what I call the church and understand that not everything, everything could be measured. You need to sort of separate growth where everything is measured from the brand, the church, the content, stuff that you could measure some of, but not everything, if you want to keep it creative. And not everybody could swallow that frog, you know? But we researched a lot of HR people, and we discovered that 98% of thousands of HR managers surveyed, surveyed said that they were burnt out. And I think 70-something or 80% said that they're like uh, open for, like they're looking for another job. It was insane. So since then, I think that we got about... 200 mentions for this thing for free in the media around the world. We were invited to places there. They also have happened to be our target persona, right? But we discovered a story. We developed an angle. We did an integrated effort all around this. We obviously didn't lie. We highlighted something important and we got a lot out of it. That's an example. Thanks for sharing that story about Story-led marketing, that's a very helpful <laughs> illustration. In previous conversations, we've talked about, uh, you know, you're, you've held executive roles for a long time now. Um, and you mentioned to me once that the role of the executive is changing in a very huge way. We're navigating some crazy stuff out there with a lot of volatility in the market, as you mentioned, the great resignation being a massive concern where we need to not only figure out how we're gonna produce the results, we also have to figure out how we're going to improve our employee experience so that we can retain them so that they can produce said results. How are you seeing the role of the executive changing in a huge way from uh, you know, your perspective as a marketing leader uh, and as a, a C-level in general? It's a, it's a good question because I think it's relevant to almost everybody. It's pretty simple. The number one business cost in the world is attrition, employee layover, people leaving. Um, making sure that people don't leave, as I said in the beginning of our conversation, is not enough. You want them emotionally committed. You want them really, like truly motivated. 
So the, the, the question is, how do you achieve that? And I think that what we're seeing, what we're already seeing, and it won't happen overnight, is a big shift between managers being glorified supervisors that are sitting in the same room with you and want to make sure that you are not taking uh, a one hour lunch and that you're doing a lot of work. That's like sort of somebody that wants to extract the most out of a machine. You can see you as a lever, you know, in a way. And managers that are much, much more um, mentors that identify talent and have the emotional intelligence and toolkit in order to grow people that do their job well, that are emotionally connected and committed, and that could grow uh, in order to really, really go above and beyond and become a much less expensive hire for what they produce for you and for the company uh, over the course of the years that they work for the company. Now, uh, I talk to a lot of people and everybody's identifying that shift as the generations get younger, all that mumbo jumbo in, in like, you know, uh, double quotes of, uh, uh, you know, uh, coaching and mentoring and all that, it becomes, there's much less stigma about it. Employers understand it more and more. There are more and more services that allow and encourage mental health care for employees. So we'll see less and less of these supervisors, more and more um, managers that embrace autonomy and are bold enough in order to nurture and provide independence and give that emotional mentoring in order to have, help their people grow and for example, understand what they like, what they want, what is the best place for them. Uh, that's what we're going to see more and more. And I think the great managers of tomorrow or the near, near future are going to be much more of that sort than the, you know, line managers in the factory. Yeah, so it's less about telling people what to do, but really about pointing to a vision, setting some stage for direction, giving people what they need to get the job done, and then getting out of the way. That's what I heard. A lot of that, you could like, you know, take a group of people that needs to get from point A to point B, uh, in the middle of the desert and walk with them and tell them, stay in line, stay in line, you know, like soldiers mm. and go like this. Da, da, da. At the end of the day, I mean, they'll work out of like whatever fear and discipline. They'll walk slow. They won't be motivated. They'll drag their feet. At the end, they'll get there. Or you could make it very, very clear. Where is point B that you need to get to? You see it and let them go. If you see somebody get stuck, you run over and you help them get up. But at the end of the day, this one makes their way like this. This one goes to the road and hitchhikes. That one does it together with the other guy. They get there. And you make sure that they know where they need to get to, what are the ground rules, what to do, what not to do. And when you see somebody suffering, you be proactive about it and help them get up, understand how to do better. But they get there. And then they teach their people to do the same thing. And then in order, instead of having talked about OKRs, instead of having thousands of OKRs, your objectives become even more important than the key results. 
because if they really know and feel the objective, that's true alignment. And even if they'll go a little bit like this or like that, they'll still not be off track and the company would move forward. And that's true for a company. It's also true for a football or basketball team or for a squad in the army or for any group of people working together. Speaking of this beautiful segue into the OKR realm, I yeah, think you're welcome. we both, thank you very much. I think we would both agree that the system of alignment, whatever it is, is important. In our worldview, yeah. we've used OKRs previously. And to your point previously as well, uh, I think you mentioned this, like micromanagement is dying. It's, we're not going to continue operating in that kind of model anymore. So talk to us about how you all use OKRs at WorkVivo. Like, why did you get into it at all? And you had mentioned, and we'll get into this in a bit, like, you had initial ideas of how to do it. And apparently that's evolved over time. Very curious on how that has gone. So let's go with the first part. Why are you doing OKRs at all at WorkVivo? You've done it at Travel Perk. Presumably that helped you grow. But I'm really curious because you're very passionate about the employee experience and how people feel. And now we're talking about objectives and key results, measures of things. So when I said what I said before, it sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds like very hippie, but uh, I mean, it's a spectrum. Like uh, there'll still be, you know, uh, factories and in the factories, there'll be supervisors. Uh, so, and, but even these supervisors, I think in the future would need to have more emotional intelligence and find ways to motivate the people that uh, like the, that are working for them and so forth. So there's, there's a spectrum some managers in tech are going to be 100% mentors and others are going to be supervisors with new toolkits. Now, as the company grows, when, you're, when we were small, luckily, and that has to do a lot, it starts from the like, uh, head. So John, Joe, the founders of the company, they're like amazing people, really. Like, just like they instilled an amazing culture because they're amazing people and they believe in all the right things. That's, that's just true. Uh, and they hired the best core team that I've ever seen, like really good people. So for a long time, we, we, not everybody experienced, some of them raw talent, but really good people. And just being inspiring and, you know, having everybody align on the purpose, the goals, the values, we didn't need any big OKRs, stuff worked. And you're a small company, so you work on one, two things and at a moment and that's it. Suddenly, in a year, we tripled. We're like 120, 130. Next year, we'll be double oh. again. Uh, it, it, uh, and it doesn't work anymore because you're like just aligning and aligning and aligning all day long. So you actually need the system for alignment in order not to be freaking aligning, aligning all day long, right? So uh, what I like about OKRs that is a few things. First of all, I think it's a little bit on the softer side meaning it's not all like a number that it's not a binary system. Yes. No. It, mm -hmm. it lets you over over plan. So you could achieve 70, 80% and that makes you more creative and less afraid to fail, which is a very uh, important behavior in a company. People not being afraid to fail. People not being afraid to give themselves to overshoot, you know, the pipeline that needs the generator, the ARR that, that they need to sell. So it allows you to do that. 
I also like a lot the combination of harder key results that represent something that actually happens and that can be measured with an objective that mm. is plain fluffy, but it's much easier to define vision like that. And that's that, that, that. And the third thing is that it's simple. It's very simple. So people can understand it. So the objective gives you that high level umbrella of uh, vision, alignment, purpose that is what creates that, you know, uh, beacon that I talked about before. People know where to head. So even if they mid-quarter understand that that key result, ah, we shouldn't have done it. It's not that great, you know. They'll do something else, but they still know the objective. That's really good. Uh, and then for other people, some people need to have that as well. You know exactly what we need to do. So that's very easily translatable into tasks. So the system itself, I think, is very good. It had, has its like shortcomings, I think. And this is why it's important for every company to like sort of tweak it in order to find what could work best for you. Which then leads us to the second part of the question. You all have tweaked it. You all have tweaked how OKR should work now at WorkViva. Can you talk a little bit about the tweaks and maybe mm -hmm. demystify a bit um, why you made it those decisions that lend to better overall results? Because that's really what we're talking about here is, yep. yeah, everyone needs to feel good about their work. But honestly, people feel good when they actually are making progress on things that they set out to achieve. That's a very powerful thing. Yep. Like, uh, so a few things that come to mind. First of all, in both companies where we use OKRs and Travel Perk and, and, and at Work Vivo, um, it started to work. That's a very operational thing. But leadership teams are very busy, very busy. And leadership teams are usually like the worst in the company and actually managing stuff operationally because they're also dealing with a lot of high level stuff, investments, this, that. So in both companies, uh, when we included somebody uh, from the team, giving the opportunity to work with the leadership team in order to operationally help with rolling out OKRs to the company and made them the operational owner of that, uh, and that was a that was a key moment. That was a big help. Otherwise, uh, a lot of times the leadership team became in both companies the actual bottleneck. We already went into the next quarter and we didn't do the OKRs yet. Everything is like uh, you're chasing your own tail. So getting a talented owner that makes it happen has enough business acumen and um, a, you know, uh, uh, the right approach to speak to leadership at a leadership level, but they could be very young. And being able to translate that to the company and roll it out, that's very key to have that owner that it's their job. Uh, that's one thing. Second thing is we define that it is interesting. We define that's an idea by that person that does it for us. Her name is Ellen. And, and we, we, we have two types of, uh, of, of targets, of OKRs. One of them we call, uh, I remember the names, uh, transactional, and the other one is inspirational. So mm -hmm. we have stuff that are your normal OKR objectives, you know, like uh, crack that market or do this and that. And you have others that are the actual number. Why? Because a lot of times companies chase numbers, especially when you're in growth stage, and not by the best practice, not putting a number in the objective is limiting because the truth is that you talk about that number all day long. What's going to be the sales target this quarter? And you don't want that to be a key result. You want that to be the thing. 
So we have both kinds. We have like uh, one or two that are led by a number, by something very clear and are either achieved or not. And mm. we have the others that are more visionary a little bit and then translate into the more practical key results and they're colored differently. So you could view it and see that we have these and we have these. Crack the French market, have the, uh, get like a 20 million ARR, right? So, uh, and the third thing that I think is the most um, interesting, I always found it very limited, limiting to work quarter by quarter. Hmm. Uh, because a quarter is a, three months is a very short amount of time. Now, it's not short for a key result, but for an objective, it's a true objective, sometimes it's just too short. So you never get to define the big thing. So I always felt like I need to have goals for the whole year, but then also have OKRs, but then you have this and this and that. So we decided to uh, work. We define objectives, not for a quarter, but for half a year, for two quarters. And under it, two sets of key results for the two quarters. So you would have one objective for H2, and then a set of key results under it for Q3 and for Q4. Hmm. And then the objective becomes much more long-term and you feel that you could achieve it. I could crack the French market in six months. But the key results are giving me a chance to achieve them in two months or three months. So these are three things that are, uh, have been working for us that I think uh, are important. Very, very helpful. Other thoughts that come to mind when you were talking about, you know, focusing solely on, let's say, qualitative measures, especially if you just pick one. There's lots of anti-patterns that show up. Actually, there's a few lo like laws that I've read about, Goodhart's law and Campbell's law. But both of them is the more a metric counts for real decision making, the greater the pressure for corruption, which causes distortion in the situation that maybe opposite of what you intended to actually pay attention to. Uh, example comes to mind is like a customer support team that's being measured by the number of tickets that they deal with. Uh, they might instead uh, not fully solve a question um, because they're measured on the number of tickets dealt with. So they'll kind of half ask the, or answer the question and the customer now has to come back. It's a weird thing that actually happens uh, apparently uh, in research. So to your point, kind of makes sense to balance this stuff out, to offset some weird anti-patterns that might appear as a result of being hyper fixated on any particular number at any given point in time. So for sure. It's good because you need the number because you want them to like, uh, you need a leading indicator in order to, uh, you know, get people uh, chasing something, especially when you're in growth stage, for example, like us, right? then you have to, you have to. But on the other hand, you, we open all these tickets. Did we make the objective? Did we, did we create the best customer support experience in our market? Exactly. That's exactly it. Right. And maybe you measure that with an alternative key result that could be customer satisfaction. Like what does that score look like? And it could be someone telling you we had to come back two, three, four or five times about the same question. And one of the other measures was the number of tickets they dealt with. Like these would balance themselves out. So you don't get into a weirdo state for sure. Look, you have, you have like uh, you know, four levels of alignment. You have like a, uh 
like uh, the level of alignment, like the lowest, it's like the Maslow pyramid of needs. Like you have the, the lowest mm. level of alignment that, that would be, I'm making it up as we speak, but it would be like a safety, sort of like I'm, I'm within the rules, right? I didn't break the right. rules. And then there is like the other one that would be, uh, you have to make your an SDR, you need to make 30 calls a day. I made 30 calls a day. Like, uh, okay, I can check out. That's functional. Then you have the sort of like relational level of like uh, alignment, which is about a lot about that emotional connection that we talked about. We have values that we share. We work in the way, in, in, we work the same way. I can tell you that I don't know. I could ask for help. We could do it together. Brainstorming. Then you have the last level that is inspirational. Uh, I hope that all makes sense because I'm really making it up as we go along. But inspirational would be the purpose of the company, what we want to achieve. We want to become the number one, whatever and whatever, right? Uh, and uh, you have all these uh, levels. It's very important that your aligning system, OKR in this, uh, is, is an example, uh, would let you address all of them. The easiest ones to address are the ones here. I mean, just get me to 30 calls a day. But it all, the objectives are your opportunity to go inspirational and say, that's our North Star. Now, you might take it this way, this way, or that way. But remember my analogy from before, the soldiers, get to that hill. And, 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 and uh, that's why these two levels work so nicely together. And you should also not over-engineer it. I think that 80%, 80 of the OKR system is in the objectives. And just like writing a tagline, which is like a good tagline in marketing, which is like one line can take you a week. It's really hard to do. It is so hard. And nail. Yeah. It's a lot in like six words, right? Mm-hmm. So getting these objectives right, that's like 70, 80%. When you get them right, you're good. Then most of the work, but 30% of the impact is getting all these key results in place. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's the honest truth. You know, so you said, I'm making this up as I go along. I'm smiling because apparently you're a scholar. Uh, there is a lot of research around exactly what you talked about. Uh, one that I can cite is from Stanford about uh, organizational blueprints for success. Uh, and what they wrote was, it is really important to understand the means and control and coordination within the organization. And they cite four different types of control and coordination. One, direct monitoring. That would be like your call center and making sure that people are doing their stuff and they don't get in trouble. Two, what you describe as the highest form of this, peer and cultural control, where really it's about the organization being able to assemble and attack a problem together. Uh, and for there to be almost a pressure internally amongst teams to actually do what you said you were going to go do. There's a lot of kind of peer pressure, if you will, that comes with that. Uh, the third is a reliance on professional standards. So if you're an SDR, it makes sense that you should probably be making a lot of calls because you need to book them. And then the last is formal processes and procedures. Naturally, every organization is going to have some flavor of all four. But according to research, the organizations that fare the best, and they qualified that by these were the startups and the scale-ups that exited or IPO'd, were based on peer and cultural control. No surprise there. Amazing. So, that's, that's really reassuring. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. It's, uh, it's really you should be reassured. That, uh, you are right on. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we'll go into some quick fired questions. I feel like um, this this conversation is going so quick, and I've learned so much in such a short amount of time. Thank you for that. I also I also learned a lot. I even like learned that like uh, I could now say what I said before and say that it's actually Stanford, so people would listen to me. <laughs> exactly. It's always good to substantiate what you're thinking, right? It's always good. Um, okay. First question is, what's your yeah. dream with a deadline? Like that's the name of my my podcast. So what's your dream? If it has a de deadline my, or not, it's fine. Wow, it's a good one. My dream, my dream, and I need to, I need to like add the deadline to it as well, right? Mm. I don't know. I think my dream is to like travel around the world for a year with my wife and my two uh, kids. And um, I want to have that. I want to make that happen in the next like six years, not because I can't now, but because I want my kids to be like old enough. But like, that's my absolute dream. That is so cool. I love that. You've mentioned it a little bit before, but maybe we'll deep dive in there. Like, what do you appreciate about WorkVivo and the team that you get to work with? and lead um they're a very special team like um people that know me uh, maybe it's my israeli uh, like uh, nature i i don't just, i only say stuff that i mean so I, I don't just pay compliments these guys are just they're a brutal team they're like they're amazing uh, so uh, i appreciate them a lot because they're just the best in the business i think they're the kind of like a team that like competitors like fear seriously because they're much bigger than us and our marketing is so much more accurate and louder and clearer. so we get that a lot when we interview people from other companies so I, I i get that so much like in terms of feedback and i appreciate that a lot because they're the ones that are doing it and if i have to like uh, say one thing i'd say extreme ownership i have guys in mm -hmm. the team guys girls in the team that are extreme owners of their domains and what they do they would do it if i'm away for three weeks or if i'm here uh, they'd use me they'd use each other but they are like startups within a startup they're so independent and that's key because uh they all bring amazing results without being too dependent on other stuff that are happening and distracting they're just extreme extreme owners and my hope is my hope with that my dream with the deadline is that now that we're scaling that uh, each one of my core guys would be able to hire a team that has the same DNA of extreme ownership. I love that extreme ownership. There's a hashtag in there somewhere. Um, so it, seeing as you've been a chief marketing officer for a long time, very experienced seasoned professional, what would you say in your experience that is like the number one strategy execution challenge? Um, I think that the biggest uh, challenge of CMOs, especially in a B2B company, is for CEOs and leadership teams to take them seriously. Uh, I think that the vast majority of B2B companies out there treat marketing as a necessary evil. It's something mm. that you need to have, but you're not very excited about. What you want at the end of the day is a number, just a number. Uh, and you're missing out on marketing. You're missing out on the ability to tell a story, to excite the market, to create that emotional connection with a customer or a prospect where he wants to buy from you and he doesn't even understand. Remember that Daniel Kahneman-like quote? And that, good, that, that, that 
air cover that uh, creates inbound sales that come to you. And then uh, uh, the level of like helping inspire the product and the sales strategy sometimes or partner strategy, not the, based on what we're doing right now, that like looking for the coin under the flashlight, but based on where we want to get to. Uh, marketing could add and should add a lot of like vision of where the marketing should go. Not only a product, but a whole belief system, uh, a story, uh, a brand. And I think most companies are missing out on that. And it's uh, a lot of struggle to convince CEOs uh, about stuff like that. Most of them don't get marketing and worse, they don't like uh, marketing. So it's an uphill battle. And then your choice is either to be very, very selective on where you start working so you could take the easy path like I sort of did here in this company and work for a CEO and for a leadership team that it, it, it acknowledge and admire marketing and let it lead uh, and disrupt the market uh, or think from very, very early on, what's your internal marketing strategy in order to get these people on board and not just like uh, be in a constant fight and reduce yourself to the more transactional parts of marketing that are 10% of the potential. Uh, I think that like eight out of 10 marketers in B2B are in that unfortunate spot. And that's the number one challenge. Oh gosh, what a really well-articulated answer. I appreciate that. Well, Gideon, it has been such a pleasure and honestly an honor to get to interview you today. Thank you for these insightful, nuggets of wisdom based on your experience that I've really appreciated it. Uh, thank you, Jenny. It was really, really good. But you didn't tell me, uh, uh, where did you get your nickname? <laughs> I think when people get to really know me, they will get it. The fury comes from me being really hype when I am really excited about something. Like you will hear the decibel level of my voice increase the volume and cadence of my voice, everything just starts to ratchet up and they're like, okay, there's the fury. It showed up. <laughs> okay. So next time I'm, next time I'm in Berlin, I'm coming to visit you guys in the office because I want to see this live. Okay. You got it. Okay. So thanks for having me on the podcast. It was uh, great fun and hope to meet you face to face at some point, uh, at some point soon. Would love that. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.